three scripture readings this morning as we continue in our sermon series on spiritual practices using our text from John 15:5 as a guiding passage. This is where Jesus says to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Our second scripture reading is from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, where Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And our final scripture text for today comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we're going to jump back into our series for the summer after breaking from last week, hearing from the Kenya team. And the series is called Connecting to the Vine. And the image of Jesus as the true vine and his followers as the branches comes from John chapter 15. And that is our guiding image for this series. We are meant as followers of Jesus to remain attached to Jesus. And that is how we live fruit-bearing lives. If we want our lives to produce fruit, we don't muster up the strength and energy on our own to do that. We stay connected to the vine, and the vine produces the nutrients that allows fruit to grow and, and be produced through our lives. So that's our image, and what we're looking at this summer are spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices that we can uh, do and practice in our daily lives that help to keep us connected to the vine. Um, and so they remind us of our connection with Jesus and help us to grow in our awareness of God's presence with us at all times. And so this morning we are looking at the practice and discipline of prayer, the practice of prayer. Now, of course, prayer is a massive subject. It's a, quite a conundrum as well, and there are lots of different kinds of prayers. And up here in, in worship, we, we do corporate prayer, as we just experienced from Laurie's prayer that she offered. We pray in groups sometimes um, in our Bible studies and whatnot, and we engage in intercessory prayer. What we're talking about this morning is personal prayer, and specifically with Within personal prayer, 
contemplative prayer as, as a practice, contemplative prayer. What in the world is contemplative prayer? Well, the word contemplative comes from the Latin word contemplatio, and it's an interesting word. We often use the word to denote uh, ruminating or thinking about something. And so if someone's trying to make a big decision in their life, whether to move to a new state or to take a new job, we might say they're contemplating this decision. But that use of the word is not in keeping with the historical understanding of the word contemplatio. The word literally means to behold. Contemplatio means to behold. And so contemplative prayer is about beholding. When I look at a tree that's magnificent, the other day we were at soccer practice for our daughter and there was this incredible tree and I was taken by this tree. I was, I was beholden by it. Um, same thing if you look at an incredible mountain or a sunset, you might behold that experience. And when you do that, you move beyond discursive thought and into the realm of encounter, into the realm of experience. We're dealing with the God of the universe here um, who is not limited by our words. And sometimes our words are too small when it comes to our experience and our relationship with God. And so contemplative prayer is about entering into God's presence and becoming aware of that presence and, and growing in our unification, our oneness with God. And so I just want to share a few thoughts about what contemplative prayer does in our lives, how it forms us over time. This is not exhaustive. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just a few thoughts that, that the Spirit gave to me this week through my study and my prayer. And then um, in the newsletter article that's going to be coming out uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to mention five different ways, um, different practices of contemplative prayer that you can engage in, um, in on your own. That'll come later. But first, um, the th my first thought for this morning is that prayer moves us. When we practice this regularly, it moves us from reactivity to serenity. Um, or you could also say that it moves us from distractedness to centeredness. But I'm going to go with reactivity to serenity. Serenity is a state of being calm, untroubled, at peace. We find in our lives that we can be quite distracted and we can be react we can react to things that go go on that, that come at us and prayer grounds us and it gives us a kind of serenity you may have um read uh, neuroscience um, or articles or books about how mindfulness or meditation actually can change the brain. The same is true with contemplative prayer. It has the same effect on the brain and there's a whole um, new field that's been around for about 15 years now. It's still underway and it's called neurotheology and it's kind of taking what many secular um, scientists have described discovered about mindfulness in Harvard and Stanford and other studies and how you, it actually changes your brain and it applies it to prayer, um, which includes the relationship with God, right? And so it, what it does is it changes your day over time in terms of more self-control, greater self-awareness, being less triggered, less impulsive, 
Um, and, and these studies reveal that more, uh, when we practice contemplation, that there's more gray matter appears in your prefrontal cortex. And you might be wondering, well, what in the world is that? Well, don't ask me. I'm not a scientist. So, um, but I'll just tell you anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's part of the brain that enables you to be focused and have a greater self-awareness. We all want that. Um, you can see your brain change. And studies have shown that if you practice this for eight weeks, like eight weeks is some particular number, every day for eight weeks you will have physiological changes in your neural chemistry in your brain. You will create new neural pathways in your brain and you can see the effect that's been shown um, by science. And contemplative practices strengthen these neural connections in your brain as well as social awareness, sense of peacefulness, and even greater sense of compassion results um, as a result of this. What strikes me is how Paul understood this thousands of years ago, long before the science um, backed it up. There was anxiety in the church in Philippi. There was a lot of anxiety in the early church in Rome, as you can imagine. Christians were being slaughtered for being Christians. They were being hung upside down and crucified and burned and all sorts of things. And Paul was going around starting churches in this environment. Now, who would want to join a church in that kind of environment? But nevertheless, they were. And in the church in Philippi, he recognized that there's anxiety in the congregation that is being managed manifest in a conflict between two people in the church, two women known as Iodia and Syntyche. We don't know the nature of their conflict or what their conflict was about, but it's really fun to say Iodia and Syntyche. So I'm going to try to use that as much as I can in this sermon. Um, but we know that conflicts come, when we are in a conflict with someone, it comes with anxiety. And there are emotions that are heightened, emotions that we're not always comfortable with and that we don't really like. We wish they weren't there. And there's fear and all sorts of things. And Paul, and prayer is Paul's remedy for a crowded mind and a crowded heart. It's his remedy for the emotions that cause conflict and arguments, the emotions that we don't understand or find comfortable. And so he writes this, do not worry about anything, and here's his remedy, but in everything by prayer and supplication. He's writing to these women, but he's also writing to all of us. With thanksgiving, remind yourself of what you're grateful for. That's always a good thing to do. Let your requests be made known to God. Like, like, like dump yourself before the Lord. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts, will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. Have you ever noticed how Jesus was oftentimes in conflict but never in an argument. You never see Jesus arguing with anybody, but he was in conflict. When he was in a conflict, he simply humbly and carefully spoke the truth of his words and let the truth do the convincing. Um, an argument develops when we feel like we have to push the truth to convince with emotion, or blame. And typically in an argument, we use way too many words. 
we, in paragraphs. We don't find that to be a problem with Jesus. And so to have the mind of Christ is to give up on arguments. And this happens through prayer. It happens through prayer. The worst arguments, of course, are the ones that we have within ourselves. Iodia and Syntyche live within each one of our hearts. And in prayer, the Lord rushes into the anxiety rooms of our hearts with love and calmness. We find less of a need to react. God's got this. I can let go. I'm called to love. God can be God. I don't have to be God. Yes, there are rational reasons to be afraid. Yes, these reasons are what irrationally leads us sometimes into arguments with others. And if we were alone, we would be in trouble. Nevertheless, we are not alone. Paul says the Lord is near. The Lord is near. He's right here. He's right with you all the time, and he's in control. So prayer is where we consciously lay our anxieties before the Lord. And when we pick those anxieties up again, then again we lay them down before the Lord in prayer. This is the life of prayer that we choose to live. And the promise is the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. That means that the peace of God is like a sentinel that stands guarding our hearts and our minds against anxiety. But this peace that comes to us is, is a gift that's given to us. And it's given to us through the practice of prayer and through our surrender. You don't think or argue your way into the peace that passes understanding. You don't do that through intense Bible study. You don't do that through theological discourse. It only comes through prayer. Many of us know and, and love the, uh, the Serenity Prayer that was written in 1943. It's one of the most famous prayers. Many people who aren't even Christians know and pray this prayer. It's written by a great Protestant theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, out of Yale. I'd like to invite you to, um, if, if you feel led, to pray this with me. Let's say it together. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, taking this world as it is and not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. What a wonderful prayer. This prayer is, is a fruit of a life of prayer. This is an understanding. This prayer reflects the understanding of a life of prayer. The second, is, the second thought is that prayer moves us from separateness to connectedness. We tend to think and to imagine ourselves as separate individuals in the world. We're taught, in fact, um, to think of ourselves this way. And in the great um, Trappist monk Thomas Merton, he talked about the false self and the true self as a way of understanding Paul's language when he talks about the old self and the new life in Christ or the, the flesh nature and the spirit. 
um, or uh, the separated self and the connected self. And so Paul talks about our, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is your true self. It is untouchable. It is unoffendable. It is eternal. And it is connected. It is in union with God, with yourself, with others. But we forget this. We think that Christ is hidden with God out in the world somewhere and we're off on our own. And what prayer does is it reminds us that we are not connected, that we are not separate individuals, that we are actually one with God and with others and creation. And so Thomas Merton, he writes this. He says, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man that I want myself to be, but who cannot exist. You might think ego because God does not know anything about him. And to be known of God is altogether, to be unknown of God is altogether too much privacy. My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality and outside of life. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. We are not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves, the ones we are born with and which feed the roots of sin. For most of the people of the world, there is no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs, which cannot exist. A life devoted to the cult of this shadow is what is called a life of sin. I love this idea. It has helped me so much in the last decade or so um, because it is in prayer that we can, we can find our center. We can find our true self. We can find the self that is hidden with Christ and God, and we can recognize our ego self or our false self in the way that it influences us throughout our days. There's a wonderful invitation to prayer in the, in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, that I think is so helpful in reminding us of our deep connectedness with God and with others. And it's, a, and it's a great passage that teaches us how to pray. The writer says this, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to, into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here the writer is writing about grace to Hebrew Christians. It's one of the most comforting and inviting passages uh, for me about prayer. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Six words here teach us so much about the life of prayer. First is that we approach God's throne, the text says. Who is sitting on God's throne? This is not a trick question. 
that would be God, right? God is sitting on God's throne. So this means that when I begin in prayer, I don't start with myself. I don't start with my own smallness, my own little problems, my ego self. I start with God and the power and the love of God. I draw my attention first and foremost to God. This is what we do whenever we come into worship. We first begin drawing our attention to God. And that then puts us in our rightful place, actually. Prayer is not just positive thinking. It's not just... Um, sending wishes out somewhere into the universe. We're, we're approaching a throne and there's somebody on that throne and that somebody is God. Now here's the thing, when I think of the word throne, I'm like, ooh, that's intimidating. I, I actually would prefer to not approach that throne. Thank you very much. I could be smited or smitten or however you use that word in that context. But here's the thing, our text says that the throne has, has a name. It, it, it's, it's not the throne of performance. It's not the throne around which beautiful people of wealth and power network together. It's not even the throne of spiritual giants. The writer of Hebrews says, you are approaching the throne of grace. The throne of grace. This is a throne for misfits and mess-ups and the needy and the desperate and the unclean and the sinful and the losers and the failures and the left behind. Who sits on a throne with that kind of power and sovereignty and wants to hang out with a crowd like that? Well, that's our God. That is our God. And that's why when we come together, we're invited to come out of hiding and, and, and to bear our true selves into the light just the way that we are, warts and sins and all. Not just that, but we come to God's throne with confidence, not in fear, not in insecurity, not in inadequacy or in anxiety. We come in confidence. Why? Because we are not separate. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so your true life is found in the presence of God. That's where you belong, right? And so the, the reason for our confidence has nothing to do with our strength, our faith, our might, our performance, not even our spiritual performance, not our achievement, our, not our attainment, not our gifts. We have confidence because we have a high priest who is unlike any high priest who has ever come before him. We have a high priest whose name is Jesus and he sits on the throne, on the right hand of God on the throne. The third thought is that prayer moves us from striving to sailing, moves us from striving to sailing. A couple of years ago, our elders, we read a book together on spiritual leadership by Joan Gray. She's a Presbyterian, written for Presbyterian elders. And one chapter talked about the difference between rowboat churches and sailboat churches. And she said that rowboat churches depend largely on human effort. And when church budgets and, uh, shrink and when memberships decline, rowboat churches just start rowing harder. And they start working harder against a current, often frustrated and disappointed by their lack of results. Sailboat churches, on the other hand, understand how to pivot. They can let go of their own agendas and convert themselves to the agenda of the Holy Spirit. And so they, they put up their oars, they hoist their sails, and rely on the Spirit to guide them according to the Spirit's uh, uh, wind and sail. Uh, so 
the writer says this, she encourages readers to shift the concern from the many daily practical concerns of their local church to fresh ideas that can be found using the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I think so it is for corporate bodies, for churches, so it is for Christians. We are meant not to be rowboat Christians swimming upstream. We are meant to uh, hoist up our sails and be led by the Holy Spirit. Gary Haugen uh, said that God spoke to him a phrase a few years ago that changed his life. He was heading into a year of challenge. Gary Haugen leads an organization called International Justice Mission, and their work is very dangerous, and, um, and it's, uh, it's often very daunting as well. And so in the beginning of a new year, uh, God said to him, he said, I do not want from you one more year of prayerless striving. I do not want from you one more year of prayerless striving. I don't want that to be my life, a life of prayerless striving. We can choose to live a prayerful life. We can seek above all else the steady companionship of Jesus as our friend and our Savior and High Priest. I find that we Christians can be quite intolerant of other people's ideas, but way too tolerant of our own spiritual mediocrity. Um, and we have so many excuses that we use to justify living our lives as functional atheists. We might check in with God every once in a while, but then the rest of the time it's as though the phone is, is hung up. I, I don't know, if we, do we have those phones anymore? <laughs> so I just, I just want to ask if, if you've heard of any of these excuses, uh, if they've ever occurred to your mind as a reason to avoid prayer. I don't have time to pray. I don't know how to pray. I tried before and didn't get what I wanted, so I don't think it works. I'm not sure if there is a God. I think there is a God, but I don't think he's involved at the level of my little life. My mind wanders when I pray. If I try a formula, it feels contrived. If I freestyle, it feels confusing. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm too cynical. I'm too tired. I fall asleep when I pray. I'm afraid if I prayed, God would make me change the things I don't want to change. Other people seem to hear God when they pray, and I don't hear him. If God already knows everything, my prayers wouldn't change every anything, so I don't know why I should bother. I did something bad last night, so I'm in spiritual timeout today. <laughs> I'm too extroverted. I'm too introverted. The dog ate my homework. It's amazing how we can rationalize prayerlessness and how often we'll attribute bad stuff to God and the good stuff for ourselves. Anytime something bad happens, we'll say, oh, how in the world can all this suffering take place? Why would God allow this thing to happen to me? And then something good happens in my life and I say, wow, I did an amazing job on that. Um, there's a folk singer by the name of Pete Seeger who told a story that captures this human mindset of, of striving over sailing. In the story, there are two little brother maggots, little worms, little maggots, and they were sitting on a shovel handle when a workman came and, and picked up the shovel. And one of the maggots fell into a crack in the sidewalk 
And then the other maggot fell onto the top of a dead cat. The one that fell on the top of a dead cat ate and ate, this is super gross by the way, <laughs> ate and ate and ate for three days until he could eat no more. And then he went to the crack in the sidewalk and he called down to ask his brother, how are you doing down there? How's it going down there in the crack? And the brother said, I've been here for three days without any food or drink. I'm nearly starved, but you are sleek and fat. To what do you attribute your success? Brains and personality, brother. Brains and personality, the worm said. To what do you attribute your success? Brains and personality. This is the human condition. Until we fall into a crack, then it's no more about brains and personality, it's about bad luck, right? And we're, we'll be reminded we, we were not meant to live on the power of brains and personality. Remarkable as yours may be. We're meant to run on God and on the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, I'm going to close with this um, thought. There are numerous ways to pray on your own, but there's no right way. The key is to show up. Every time you show up, even if it's for one second, you are saying, God, I need you. And that has an effect on your heart and on your mind. And every time you say, nah, you, you are simply saying, God, I don't need you right now. So just show up on a regular basis. If you get distracted a hundred times, that's a hundred opportunities to return back to Jesus. Uh, maybe you've heard the phrase that most of us have monkey minds, that, that, that our, our minds are like banana plants or banana trees, and our thoughts are like monkeys, and they just jump around from one branch to another. It, it is in prayer that we can find the center, that the monkey mind can calm down and uh, and we can find our opportunity every time we get distracted to return. And every time is a, an opportunity to return to Jesus. Mother Teresa said, we need to find God and he cannot be found in noise and restlessness. God is the friend of silence. See how nature, trees, flowers, grass grows in silence. See the stars, the moon, and the sun, how they move in silence. We need silence to be able to touch souls. And so that is what contemplative prayer does. It moves us from reactivity to serenity, a peace that passes understanding. Moves us from a sense of small and separateness to a sense of connectedness to all creation. And... It moves us from being striving to sailing with God. Lord, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for inviting us to prayer. God, remind us each morning as we wake up and the cares and the worries and the tasks start flooding our minds, even if it's just for a couple minutes. Lord, help us to shove them all back that we might attend to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.